Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. The lineup tonight, Pete Najarian, Phil Camporello from J.P. Morgan, Dan Nathan and Guy Dami. Check out shares of Wells Fargo. That stock's up about 3%, 2.5% after our CEO Tim Sloan says he will step down from the company. We'll bring you all the latest details. Plus, we are waiting pricing for Lyft, which is expected any moment as the company gears up for its potential $20 billion debut tomorrow. We've got full team coverage as the action unfolds. But first, we start off with a rock and Retail. The group of stocks on track for their best quarter in six years. And check out some of the biggest winners this year. Ulta Beauty, Best Buy, Target, TJ Maxx, Costco, all surging double digits. In this, is this the face of a slipping consumer confidence? Recession fears continuing to weigh in the minds of consumers and GDP growth below 3% in 2018, we found out today. So can the retail rally rage on in this environment? Are there any bargains out there, Guy? Well, as long as the mar- and welcome back. We, you know, we here. miss you when you're not here. Honest <laughs> to God. No, I'm I mean, glad we, I, to be back. You know, Brian was here, and, and right? Scott, we had Scott, Scott, here. Scott was sick yesterday. Double, double. It's, yeah. it's great. I just, it feels like a warm blanket when you're back. Aww. What was the question? I know. I'm kidding. It's a joke. So can the retail rally continue? Yes, one thing I've learned over the years is never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend. As long as the market's okay, which it now has been for the last couple months, U.S. consumer feels good about things, they will spend. In my opinion, it doesn't mean they should be spending. We have a conversation on whether or not they're in a situation where they should be levering as much as they are, but they will spend. Want to trade? Look at what Dollar Gen did about a week, week and a half ago. The report, it was a pretty disappointing quarter. The stock went down about 10 and a 11% in a straight line. Now it's right back to those levels. Fair valuation. The stock is telling you something. Feels like it wants to break out. And two days after earnings, they had a couple of analyst upgrades. So when you see bad price action, but then great price action on the back of a spotty quarter, that to me is a tell. I think that goes higher. What's your sense of discretionary at this point, Phil? I think you got to like retail. So you can make the case right now, Melissa, that the consumer has never been as healthy as they are right now. And why is that? So there's three things, right? First is uh, the wealth effect. The stock market's gone up, but I think there's some holes in that actually because not everyone has a stock portfolio. Uh, But the other thing that's important to to remember, and if you could pull the chart up, I I brought along a chart with me, debt service. So this is a huge difference from prior cycles. Disposable, the debt service or debt payments as a percentage of disposable income, look where it is. Lowest level since 1980. Right, and look where it was in the at the end of the is prior. Is that primarily cycle. because people have delevered, or because interest yep. rates are so low? So the big something. one was the deleveraging, uh-huh. right? But also, I mean, with the exception of a little, uh, a couple of times, the ten-year Treasury, Melissa, has been between two and three percent for the past eight years. Right. Right. So, and the Fed, by the way, just said we're done hiking rates. So the consumers have delevered, and debt service costs are very, very low, and that's also a tenant, a major tenant, into the sustainability of the economy because 70% of the U.S. economy is the consumer that guy just mentioned. How does this translate into what you buy, Pete? Yeah, well, what I've been buying is anything that I find where I've got serious growth. They've also got a dividend yield, so it actually is anywhere close to where the where the ten-year is right now. If it's close or bigger. I look at these companies and I'm like, hey, if you've got growth, you've got that, and the fundamental story is there. I'll give you a great example. Target trades at 14 times, gives you a nice dividend yield. They're a buyback king, and the stock has gone from 69 to $81 in a very short period of time, and it's still too cheap, in my opinion. I, there, I think there are ones that are a little bit overpriced, a little expensive. I think Walmart, for instance, I thought it got in front of itself. It got up towards $100. You look at the multiple of those two different stocks, completely different, and margins are different. So, I, you know, we compare those all the time, but you look at PVH last night. Great numbers. Great growth. They've got everything going for them. That trades at like a 13 PE. So there are companies out there that are not trading at this inflated area and they still have growth and they're delivering the numbers. 
Well, here's the thing. If you're looking at retail stocks and what they're doing in the Q1 of 2019 and you're saying that this is a healthy environment for the retail, uh, for our consumer, I think you're doing it wrong. I mean, like, listen, you know, you just mentioned Target. It was trading at $88 at the end of Q3 in 2018. It went all the way down to 60 in December. Hold on. I'm sorry. We've got breaking news on Lyft. It's price. Let's get to Deidre Bosa for the details. Deidre. Well, this is a moment we've been waiting for. Lyft has priced its IPO at $72 per share. According to a source, this new price gives the company an initial market cap of $20.5 billion on a non-diluted basis. It will start trading tomorrow morning on the NASDAQ. Now, this is a major jump from its last private market valuation of $15 billion, and it comes after the company. We've been talking about this lots, lost over $900 million last year. But, of course, there was a ton of interest in this listing. It was oversubscribed very early on in the roadshow. And Lyft raised the range yesterday. Now, we're going through these numbers. The pricing also tells us how much Lyft's founders and early investors are making, at least on paper. Logan Greenstake, worth around $600 million based on this pricing. John Zimmers, the other co-founder, worth about $415 million. Other big winners in this IPO are Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, Capital G's, David Lawi on the board, and Japanese e-commerce company Rakuten will continue to go through this. Uh, the lead underwriters, remember, they are J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse, and Jefferies. We'll bring you more as we have it, Melissa. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa uh, joining us in San Francisco. So we knew that this is going to be a hot one, Pete, but it looks like uh, it really yeah. came up. And especially when we look at where the pricing was just not long ago, yeah. and we continue to see it go up, 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 and now it goes to the top end of the range from that 70 to 72. I mean, this is something that everybody's been talking about, oversubscribed. Everybody wants this. I think the key is, what does this stock look like a week from now? I mean, forget about what it does tomorrow. What's it going to do in a week from now when it's a company that hasn't made money? They don't know when they're ever going to make money. And last year, what did they lose? $900 million, she said? I'm glad that you've mentioned that because the comparison is the biggest IPO since Snap. Huh. Yeah. And what happened with it's Snap? Funny. Yeah. I, I don't think IPO. the lens should be what's going to happen in a week from now. I mean, think about this is a massively transformative company. We were talking about it last night on the desk. What they're doing to the addressable market as it relates to transportation as a service, it's tremendously disruptive. And, you know, you talk about profitability. Amazon went public in 1997. They didn't turn a profit until, like, late 2001, 2002 on an annual basis. And even then, they had very little profits because they kept on investing back. So when you think about Lyft, it is a pure play on the ride-hail market here in the U.S. And they're also going to be plowing investment dollars into autonomy. And that is the future of transportation. So to me, I think it's who cares what's going to do a week from now. I mean, this thing has been valued up pretty dramatically over the short period of time. I think this is a very unique opportunity, I, unlike Snap a couple I years ago. I appreciate that that <laughs> idea that uh, take a look at Amazon. Yeah. But in terms of investing at this point in the company's life cycle, right. are we investing in the same point in that, from Amazon's life cycle when it IPO'd? No, I, I mean, mean, it was much earlier, I right? I agree with so, that. It, it, you know, so that was the first inning, the first pitch of the first right. inning back and then here or whatever. We are, but I, I don't, don't think investors felt that way in 2001 when the company was still losing money. Um, let's get more on the Lyft IPO. Bring in Loop Ventures founder and fast money friend Gene Munster. He joins us from Minneapolis. All right, Gene. Um, it, it sounds like you don't necessarily, you're not a believer in, in this Lyft IPO shorter term, but longer term, you like this, this idea. Yeah, that's exactly right, Melissa, is that in the near term, this is not a great business. I think there are some differences between what's going on with Lyft versus what happened with Amazon. This is going to create some, I think, some heartburn for investors over the next couple of years. Long term, totally agree on the opportunity here. 
the world needs ride sharing. About 10% of people in the U.S. use Lyft or some form of ride sharing, and that number undoubtedly is going to go up dramatically. But let's talk about the near term briefly here. The big distinction is that their business model uh, currently, as you've already defined, is losing money. But this concept of a shift to a world of autonomy, that is a major change in their business model. Think about the supply side that they have of, uh, of drivers and the demand side with consumers. That whole supply side equation gets turned around, which means there's opportunities for other players to start to get in the mix. I liken the Lyft IPO more to, you mentioned Snap, I think it's more like Tesla. Uh, uh, minus the uh, uh, headache of Elon Musk, but this idea that this company has an opportunity to fundamentally change the world, but the business is going to be dramatically different. I can't uh, understate that. This is going to be a very different business when autonomy comes. And I think for any investor, knowing what the kind of uh, investment that it's going to take to uh, ensure their play in that future that's an open-ended question. I think that that uh, has an impact on the current valuation. But that implies, you know, I mean, even if the comparison is, is better to Tesla as opposed to Amazon, the first 10 years, right, of, of Tesla's lifespan as a publicly traded company, they were good years for investors who got in early. I, I think they will. I think the first 10 years absolutely will be good years. I think the, first, the next two years won't be so good years for, right. for investors in Lyft. And uh, I would just put this, I mean, we're talking about trading at a 10 times revenue multiple. If you fast forward a year from now, they're, tr they're growing at 100%. So that means it's really trading at a five times. That's a SaaS-like multiple. I understand the, uh, the, the, the open-ended opportunity here, but I do think that this is a little too far uh, too fast. You think um, investors should stay away from this for the first two years? Or do you think, you know what, the next two years are rough, but this is still something that you should invest in? If an investor has the luxury of owning something and, and basically putting it away for literally the next two to five years, I think that they should own it on the IPO. I think that you're going to get a better chance for people who need to be a little bit more nimble to, uh, to eventually buy this stock at less than a $20 billion valuation. Gene, what does this mean for Uber when they, if and well, when they come out? Is this, it must be a great sign for them, or is it a question of, uh, is it zero sum? I don't think it is. It's a good sign for Uber. I think, I mean, just taking a step back and thinking about what this means for tech IPOs in general and for players like uh, other players in the ride-sharing market, whether it's Waymo or Google, I think this is a positive. I do want to point out one theme just in terms of user behavior. The way we approach transportation today, typically if you're thinking ride-sharing, you go to Lyft or an Uber app. If you're thinking, uh, I'm not taking a ride, I'm walking or driving, you go to Google. Google has a huge opportunity here because they own that top of the funnel, more than a, uh, a billion monthly users on, on Google Maps. As Google starts to onboard Waymo into that app, I mean, that is a powerful uh, top of the funnel. And I think uh, when I think about other players that are impacted by this, I think Google uh, should have some sort of uh, an impact, a positive impact on their valuation just based on the opportunity around Waymo and what they've already established as a go-to app around transportation. You're telling me then, Gene, that possibly one of the deep, most uh, deeply pocketed companies out there could potentially be a major rival and they've already got a leg up with their own autonomous technology down the road. I mean, that, that doesn't really speak well to the prospects for Lyft and Uber unless they're uh, acquisition targets. Yeah, they could be acquisition targets. I think there's more, there's room for multiple players to win in this space. Uh, I, I, when I think about the near-term investments, that's part of the reason why we're negative on the near-term on Lyft, is that we think that they need to spend a lot of money to make sure they're properly positioned against the deep pockets of Google.
All right, uh, Gene, thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. It's always great to get your insight, thank Gene you. Monster of Loop Ventures. Um, Phil, what does this mean? That the fact that this is oversubscribed, it raised its range, priced above this range, yep. what does this indicate? So uh, from a sentiment standpoint, the market's looking for some direction here, right? So I think, you know, Pete made a point about the next week. I think it's really important that this goes well over the next week, actually. For the markets overall. For the markets in general. And, it, and what Guy was talking about, about the, the companies that are coming behind it. This is, what was the phrase, stampede of unicorns that people yeah. were talking about, right? So after this, if this, if this crashes and burns, right, that's, that's a bad sign for sentiment and then what's coming after that from the IP. Is that going to be an indicator for you, Pete? You know, I think it, to some degree, yes. But I, I still look at the, everything in their own individual silo, and I look at this particular weight name, and the reason I say that, when Snap came out, it jumped right away to $27 a share, almost immediately. I think it was day one or two. It hasn't even come close to returning to those levels since. I view this the way Gene's talking about, okay, Snap, maybe Snap does work five years from now. Maybe Lyft works five years from now. But do you want to wait? Is your money, is your money that value to you that you'd rather sit there and wait in Lyft and wait at $72 and watch it sink down, most likely, in my opinion, as it's burning money, as everybody else and competition starts to step in? I mean, we don't, th if, if you think it's just Lyft and, it's, and, and, and there's only two guys in the game, Uber and Lyft, that's not true. There are places all over the country you can go to. There are multiple others that are competing at a much lower level. So I think competition's going to make it that much tougher. I think Phil makes a really good point from a sentiment standpoint. You just talked about the stampede that's coming. I think you, I, I, Uber will be the test. This, this is like yes. just this is like an appetizer or a moose bouche as you call it or something like that. This is just a Very little bit of a, a little bit of a taste because when when Uber and they start talking about a hundred billion dollar valuation, that is going to be the test. That would be a Fortune 100 company there by market mm -hmm. cap. You know, so to me, and then we know what comes be uh, after that. We got Pinterest. We're going to have uh, WeWork at some point. Airbnb. I mean, the list. Goes goes on and on and on. And these are massive, massive market caps. So you tell me, when we have mega cap tech that's kind of stalled out here, is there an appetite for all these companies that are basically all losing money? Um, I'm, not no? so, I'm not so certain if they all come too close together. Or are we in this kind of market where people are so reaching for growth that they are willing to go out on the risk spectrum and invest in these unicorns? Clearly where we are, especially with the Fed. At the, and there's some, great, there's some great TV shows on the CNBC network. And this morning I was watching the Squawk on the Street. When, a fine when Jim, program. It is a fine yeah. program. And they asked Jim Cramer about this IPO specifically. Mm -hmm. He said, if this goes well, it's a great sign for the market and the retail investor. I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's sort of what Phil is saying. So clearly this is probably a positive for the market. My concern would be Pete's concerns as well. If this market were to turn, which we can debate whether or not it is, first thing's going to go are names like Lyft. So I would be concerned, uh, given how the frothiness of this, that this this exuberance won't last. All right. Well, right before Lyft goes public, catch the rideshare company's founders on Squawk Box tomorrow on a first on CNBC interview you will not want to miss. Coming up, Wells Fargo CEO announcing that he is stepping down the stock, jumping after hours on that news. We'll bring you all the latest details after this. Plus, the Oracle of Omaha just made a mistake with one of his own investments, but one of the traders think the accident could actually pay off. We'll explain. Plus, it's opening day and Pete Najarian here just itching to get into the game. He'll step up to the plate to give us his fast fit for one stock sitting near bear market territory he says is about to break out. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more fast money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on a story hitting the wires in just the last hour. Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan is stepping down. Wilfred Frost joins us with more on this story. Hey, Will. 
Hey, Minister, so Tim Sloan has always been in a pressurized job since he became the CEO of Wells Fargo back in October 2016 due to political and media pressure following the cross-selling scandal, but also due to share price underperformance. But for at least the first half of his two and a half year tenure, he was protected by the fact that it was felt by the board and shareholders that an insider was probably best place to tidy up the cross-selling scandal. That thought process also applied when the Fed's unprecedented asset cap punishment was imposed in October 2017. However, shareholders started to grow tired as the tidy up, the Fed asset cap and the share price underperformance persisted. That said, this is a retirement from Tim Sloan. He's not been fired. And the political pressure he's continued to face personally is likely a large part in his decision to step aside in the best interests for the company. The board confirmed they will look outside for a successor, no doubt in part to try and remove that political pressure by appointing someone who is totally distant from the cross-selling scandal that led to his appointment in the first place. Melissa? Well, who would be uh, the front runners for this job? Uh, I think uh, a few names, a couple of former Goldman Sachs uh, executives uh, have already been mentioned. Harvey Schwartz, who was, of course, recently co-president and COO with David Solomon, who uh, ended up getting the CEO role. The other former CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, in Gary Cohn. You'd look as well to Gordon Smith, the head of Chase, uh, who is a COO, one place under uh, Jamie Dimon at uh, JP Morgan, though he's uh, pretty happy at uh, JP Morgan, and I'd be very surprised if it was him, but he's certainly a hugely qualified candidate. A few others, like Richard Davies, the former US Bancorp CEO, uh, and Bill Demchak at PNC would, would be in the list. But uh, the clear thing is that this is going to be an outsider. The other point to note is that the interim CEO is the legal counsel, uh, suggesting there that they are, of course, still under uh, a lot of questions on, on that front, but also making it clear that it's not the long-term person taking over. Right. And, and well, to be clear, it's not just that Tim Sloan took over and had to clean up the mess that was already made, but there were also other messes all under his tenure that were discovered when it came to auto insurance, mortgage lending. I mean, it, it seemed like it didn't end. It's not like he was just brought in to clean up a mess. The mess kept getting bigger and bigger. Uh, absolutely right, Melissa. And I think uh, whether or not you would try and point the blame to him for those uh, uncoverings, which, you know, you would understandably say initially developed before his time, I think the issue shareholders had, uh, and this relates to that tidy up as well to the asset cap, is his guidance uh, always had to see the date pushed back as to when uh, it would be sorted. Most recently, with that unprecedented punishment from the Fed asset cap, uh, which was in place in 2017. Initially, they said uh, it would be lifted by late 2018, then early 2019, and more recently, mid to late this year. And uh, I think those aspects uh, started to frustrate some shareholders uh, and the share price underperformance. I don't know if we can yeah. bring up the chart of the since uh, October uh, 2016 when he took over. Wells Fargo is up 8% since then. The KBW Banks Index up 30%. Yep. Well, thank you, Wilfred Frost, joining us from the New York Stock Exchange with the latest on Wells Fargo. Does this now make Wells Fargo investable, Guy? Well, I, no. no. I, this, so I'll answer your question first and say no, and then in order. Wells Fargo should have been an outsider two and a half years with. ago. You said that in the green room. We've talked about that for a while. That was the number one mistake. Number two, they seem to be infatuated with ex-Goldman employees, guys and gals. The feeling isn't mutual. I would be shocked if Harvey Schwartz went there and Gary's making a quarter million dollars a speech. 
I don't think he's going there either. Number two. And number three, their tangible book in Wells Fargo, when they reported, was $32 a share, give or take. It's now trading $50. That puts it close to 1.6 times tangible book, which is rarefied air for them. They shouldn't be there in this environment. It should be closer to 1.3. The only thing you have going for the stock, in my opinion, is these double bottoms around 45 bucks. Outside of that, I think you sell it. Well, I mean, it, I don't know. I know where you stand on the overall banking industry. Yeah. But in terms of relative to the rest of the group, this has the potential upside of cleaning its act up. It does, but that's going to take some time. I mean, again, you know, Sloan took over in October of 2016. Here we are in Q1 of 2019, and the stock is massively underperformed. And I'll just make one other point. You talk about, you know, tangible book at 1.6 or something. Look at the money center peers that, that you know, they are. Why does Citi trade below one? Why does Bank America trade just above one? Bigger These problem. are companies where their sales are actually growing. And you know what's happened since the scandal started in 2016? Wells Fargo's sales have declined every year. They're expected to be down 2% this year. So there's still some more wood to chop and and you know whether it's investable or not fine have a ball buy it somewhere in the 40s take a five-year time horizon whatever it is they'll get this thing fixed up but before you know what that management is and before you know really what the the you know like when these shackles come off them i, I don't know it's just not a screaming buy at 49 dollars. i think tim sloan going away doesn't remove the overhang of the regulatory scrutiny i mean he was no. just on capitol hill in front of the house financial services committee yep. and was asked the question is wells fargo too big to manage that question doesn't go away with a change in CEO. No, and if there is a change, and to your point, Dan, and I fully agree, until we know who that is and how that's going to line up and how they're going to approach this going forward, I don't know that it's the greatest investable idea out there because I think there are other names you could go to. But that being said, but one of the names that I really do like, I I heard Wolf bring up Richard Davies. If if there's somebody out there who'd be very interesting, Hmm. I'm not positive he wants the job. But maybe he would. And if he would, the guy did an unbelievable job for many, many years himself. So does he fit? I think he fits very well to Wells Fargo. Banks, Phil, what do you think? So one of the things we like to say about banks is we don't believe that there should be a 70% chance of a rate hike. I'm sorry, a rate cut this year. That's what's priced in. There's no reason for that. The only way that that happens is if we go to crisis or if we're in recession. So from the banking standpoint, we think they're undervalued. They're oversold. Um, We like banks. In the minority well, on this desk, I think. Well, I mean, but, but, you know, I think the broader conversation is the end of QT is really effectively a cut, right? And so now we've had these percentage of an actual cut actually moved up pretty dramatically. So you think they're kind of high. Um, at this point, you know, we have a Fed that's saying one thing, but we have, you know, um, we have their actions, which are saying something very different. We have the yield curve telling us something entirely different at this stage of the cycle. So to me, it just doesn't seem like a group that I, we've been saying this for 18 months now. This is the group. This is one that's going to benefit from, so you know, It sounds like he doesn't believe what the yield curve is telling us. Well, he does. I, I mean, that he doesn't. That's not a true, a true tell. No, not this time around. The right. yield curve is not telling us something. Why? But, but but have we ever had, we, have tr- we ever had the, the, the uh, rates up. as low as they are right now? Have we ever come off a period of, of zero interest rates and QE for as long as we had? I mean, I, I just don't understand that. That has a three and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. Right. The yield curve was never this flat with a with a balance sheet that was this big. Right. right? So well, how much higher would the ten year note be if the Fed didn't have a three and a half trillion dollar balance sheet? And they just told us last week know, they're going to keep it at three. But Phil, they were desperate to actually get it below a trillion, which where it was ten years ago before they basically had to save the global economy because the banking sector almost blew it all up. So at this point, when you think about how fragile it is and how how they literally had to walk such a fine line yep. in the Q4 because that running off of the balance sheet was. Actually actually going to do some serious damage to global markets. And that's why they pivoted. Last word, Phil? <laughs> Dividend yields, to Pete's point. There you go. Banks pay dividends. We're going right. to need that. Barely. 
<laughs> they barely pay dividends, and they weren't allowed to pay them for years. For we have to pay like commercials. Fargo. Yeah, I mean, we got to go. No, let's go. You can head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on the show. Capitalism can can be rough. It produces good results overall, but but it is survival of the fittest. That's right, Warren. And he says there's a clear winner emerging in this group of stocks. We'll tell you the name that has the Oracle of Omaha doubling down. Plus, it's opening day, and Pete Najarian is hitting the field to pitch one stock that he says could be a grand slam for your portfolio. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, said he made a mistake with one of his investments, Delta, by accidentally building a 10% stake in the company. Take a listen to his exclusive interview with Becky Quick earlier today. Delta made an appearance, I don't know, three weeks ago or at some investment conference, and they announced they'd, I think they announced they'd bought in 26 or 27 million shares and borrowed a billion dollars to do it. Well, I like that in two aspects. They'd bought in 4% of their stock, so all of a sudden we own 4% more of Delta than we had the day before. I like the fact they were willing to borrow a billion to accelerate a stock repurchase program. But what I didn't realize was that that purchase had taken us over 10%. So I was already in, in territory that I didn't plan to get. So I just decided to buy a whole lot more stock. Delta is now just about one of the only airliners sitting in the green so far this month. So will this accident by Warren Buffett pay off, Pete? Well, he's still willing to put more money, even if he found out by accident, right? And I think that says something. I think it says something about... Do you what, care about what that says? I think it, it says something. I think it has some meaning behind it. I don't think Warren's just going to throw money just because he'd made a mistake. I think there's a little bit more thought process than that. He might not have articulated that very much, but I think so. Also, Mel, when you look at of the names right now, no exposure to the issues with the Boeing. So the, basically it puts them in a very interesting spot. Now, I'm already in Southwest, which has a lot of exposure or more spo- exposure. UAL, I like less exposure. And then DAL, I, I look at Delta. I think of the names right now, that one's the best position to go higher faster. Last night, Scott was the host while you were, yes. you, you were flying back. And I said, uh, I welcome yes. you back. It is Thank good to you. have you back, by the way, at 5.30. It's the, in the, in the, the second time you've done it. Well, no, it's important. It's that happy. I know. But I'll say this. You I'm know, like Southwest Air. Oh, I'm at home. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> to your point, gave lousy, lousy guidance the other day. But the stock was up two and a quarter percent on that lousy guidance. As we say, you know, we play poker from time to time. That's called a tell. No, I know you don't play that often, but we play, and that's a tell. Bad news, good stock action, stock up again today. A little more expensive than Delta, but I think some beta is in LUV. Yeah. Nice. What, do you like the airlines, Phil? It's a classic pro-cyclical trade here. So it goes back to the point I was making with Dan before. What does the yield curve say? Is the yield curve saying we're heading into something sinister, where growth is going to slow? Or is it a classic financial condition story that makes things really easy? The stock market has done incredibly well over the past decade because financial conditions are easy. So it's all about this, this, this fork in the road now. Is the yield curve telling us something about slow growth? Then it's no. Right. But our view is it's a financial condition story, path of least resistance higher. Like so the pro-cyclical like works. Nice. Airlines have helped to put the brakes on the transports in the past month, down 7%, but our next guest says the group is about to truck on higher. Let's go off the charts with Rob Slimer, Fundstrat Advisors. He's over at the Plasma. Hey, Rob. Hey, Melissa. So let's take a look at the transports. It's a big concern for a lot of people. Things have been slowing down. The market's been pulling back. But let's just take a look at the bigger picture because I think it's really important to stay focused on the long-term market cycle. And again, we look at this 200-week, this four-year moving average as a proxy for the secular trend for the market. 
Again, back in 16, we had a major inflection point off that 200-week, that four-year average. And again, we saw that at the beginning, at the end of 2018, beginning of 19. So we still believe what we're looking at is a broader market cycle taking off here and that we're just into a period of consolidation. We had a massive move in January and February. A lot of these stocks are just consolidating and unwinding a lot of their overbought condition. Now the concern is we have all this weak relative performance. That's not a great sign. We always want to stay in the leading areas of the market and that relative performance is weak. But I do think as we get into the second quarter, there's going to be a lot of backing and filling, a lot of contra trades, a lot of mean reversion trades. And I think we're getting very close to one of those points right here. So if we look at the transports on a very short term basis, this is a daily chart. That's that menacing 200-day moving average that everybody's concerned about that the, the uh, transports can't get above. But I think the key point, the one that I think is most noteworthy, is that this RSI indicator, a, a trading indicator, a daily short-term momentum indicator, is starting to bottom out. So after four to five to six weeks of trading sideways, we think that a number of these names, after the pause, after the concern, after the bearishness comes back in, are getting ready to go. So what do you want to own? Again, we want to come back to the leading names in the leading part of the market and that rails continue to screen very well for us. So for the fast money traders, for the faster guys, it can be tactical. We think there's a buy right here on UNP. It's just starting to come off of some pretty key support here. You've had that momentum unwinding. And when you look at the relative performance, it's still in a long-term relative uptrend. That's not a straight line by any means, but there is a straight line there, and that's where it's starting to bounce. We want to own UNP. And the other name we want to own, still the same group, but starting to turn here, here's CSX just coming off that 200-day sideways for four to five, six weeks. It's a pretty timely setup. We think the market goes higher here over the next couple of weeks. All right, Rob, why don't you come on over? Join us here at the desk. Evan will bring the chair in. It's great music. Thank you, Evan. Music. No, it's not good music. No, it's I great. love the music. What is, what's that? It's good enough. We used to use yeah, real game show music, and then we got in trouble. So I love that. the fake music This is now. great fake music. But it, it still conveys the point. He's, he's here yeah. now. Yeah. Um, is this a good sign for the overall markets? I mean, if one is a believer of Dow theory and people out there, some are. So. Right. So our overall view is we, we think that the lows that we saw in December were a cycle low, very similar to what we saw in the beginning of 16. It's up for debate. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with that, but that's our view. This huge runoff the first quarter lows or the, or the Q4 lows, and now markets begin to churn and consolidate. So you're going to get backing and filling and backing and filling. So I think, again, the call is these things are going to pull back, but they're not going to break down. So longer term, I think that the market just works through this consolidation and eventually moves higher. So, Rob, I love your charting work, but you just cherry-picked the two best-looking charts <laughs> in the transports you picked up. <laughs> CSX, pick UNP, uh, NSC, the, 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 the rails look great. But there's a lot of divergence. We just yes, spent sir. some time. The airlines look horrible. FedEx looks horrible. Yes. Uh, the truckers look horrible. Yeah. Not all of them. I, no. I, I, Not I all of them. There you go. I totally Landstar. I mean, I, I'm just saying, but they, ODFL looks, looks fine. Night it, transportation. JB Hunt's pulled right oh, back. Okay, guys. So, JB Hunt looks horrible. I looked at that one, too. Now, I'm just saying, there's, there's, <laughs> lot, there's lots of divergences there, though. I mean, so it, 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 so, so, so the, the question is, are we seeing a massive failure in risk assets in general? Right? We came off the lows. Everything went up after, after crashing in the fourth quarter. And is this just a rolling over bear market bounce or not? I don't think it is. And, we're, and honestly, we're not going to know for many, many weeks, not until the market sort of works through this. But if we're right, of course, we <laughs> think we're right, then what we are seeing is just a consolidation, a rotation. Transports have pulled back. You've got daily buys, short-term buys on all these daily indicators on truckers, on rails. Of course, I'm going to pick the best names. Why would I put you in the worst names? But if you really want a dumpster dive, if you look at names like XPO and even, even FedEx and UPS, I think they're trying to bottom out. 
So I'm going to take the opposite side of that. I think, I think they're going higher. No, I mean, but dumpster diving is important because it actually speaks to risk. It speaks to the, the fact that, okay, things might be better three, six months out. And I actually think that a FedEx or a UPS well, wait, would so be... So you would rather a dumpster dive well, as opposed listen, to buying those a Those stocks are going to break out. That, that UNP, that CSX, if, if things are like, you know, they're going to be making new highs very soon. But I guess at some point at FedEx down at 176, you know, you may get a lot of bang for your buck. That was a stock that was above $200 six months ago. What would you rather? Like Let's it. just say FedEx versus Union Pacific. So, so, first of all, this dumpster dive thing concerns me. It, sounds, it just sounds extraordinarily <laughs> dangerous, and it's dirty. Unsanitary. And, and those, the, like the mice and the things are in it. It's, rats. It's very, rats. Vermin. Food. My question would be this. The S&P 500 is about 4% off its all-time high. We agree with that. That's just math, right? You, uh, Federal Express made an all-time high of 275 January. in the beginning of 2018. Why is it 35% lower now with the S&P 4%? Is it a... Federal Express thing, or does it speak to a much bigger problem? I don't know the answer, but it's worth having a conversation. And I would say, I think it's actually rolling over again to the downside. So that means, that means the answer if I'm answering is, a question, oh, yeah. would you going back does. to the would you rather, I had to get that out there, UNP. Yeah. I forgot we were playing the game. Because like usually we have the graphics when we play the game. We did have the graphic. Traded or fake? We had it when I asked the question. Sorry. Guys, I think there's a possibility. See? Have it again. Rather. FedEx has already had a major cycle correction. From 2018, everything that was cyclical got washed out. And those were major lows. And now we're just sort of working through a bottoming process. Absolutely, there's a, poss- there's a possibility <laughs> of that. Or there's a possibility that... And a pig flying? That- Are you going to say something like that? No, pigs fly? <laughs> No, this dumpster. So no, but I'm like concerned. Like so this dumpster unlikely. thing is so concerning. Do people act, is that like a thing that you have to do for fraternity? It's a thing. You it's went to thing. those schools where you have yeah, to rush. Mo- or whatever moving that's on. Called. Bree just said move on. Anyway, <laughs> Rob, thank you. It's great thank to you. see you, Rob Slimer. Fun stuff. Still ahead, this chip stock is down 40 percent from its 52-week high, but there is something in the chart that suggests the worst could be behind it. We will explain. Plus, it's opening day at the ball field, and Pete here is stepping up to the plate to pitch one stock. He says we'll be an all-star for your portfolio. Find out the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's opening day for Major League Baseball, and one former Major League pitcher is helping investors cash in on the next baseball star. Let's get to Eric Chemi, who's live at Yankee Stadium with more on this. Hey, Eric. Hey, Melissa. That's right. The Yankees just finished their game. They won 7-2. I know as a Yankees fan, Melissa, you'll appreciate that. But this story, Michael Schwimmer runs a company called Big League Advance. And the idea here is a venture capital-like approach where people can invest money with him. He's raised over $150 million so far. And you treat minor league players like venture capital companies. They invest typically $300,000 to $500,000 for about a 3 to 5% stake in these players. It's not a loan. The players can keep the money for the rest of their lives. But if they make it to the majors, then Big League Advance gets a cut of their major league earnings. And as we've seen with contracts like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, you can see a $300 million contract all of a sudden, 3% of that could make a lot of money. Here's what Schwimmer had to say about his firm. It's set up just like a tech uh, startup. If you invest in 10 tech startups and one or two become Facebook and Google, you're going to do pretty well, even though the eight or, eight or nine miss. And that's how, that's how we do it, just for baseball players instead of tech stocks. 
And so Schumer's point is that, look, we know we're going to lose money on most of our players, about 80% of them, but just a few of those that make enough, they're going to cover all the losses on everybody else. The one thing that people like about this investment, it's not correlated to the stock market. So while everyone is out there concerned about stock market, bond market volatility, this is an uncorrelated asset. And that's why he's seeing a lot of high net worth investors getting involved in this product. Back to you, Melissa. It'll be interesting to see what the longer-term returns are, Eric. Thank you. Eric Chami outside Yankee Stadium. Guy, this is an interesting development. It's fantasy sports 2.0 is what it is. And think about it in the 80s. I could have bought Pete Nigerian futures or in the 90s, Dan Nathan Lacrosse futures. Wow. I'm sure Phil played something. I could have bought PC futures. Vinny Testaverde. <laughs> Vinny Testaverde. Right. But this is the next iteration. It's in a lot of ways. This is the next iteration of fantasy sports. It's fascinating. Well, in honor of opening day, we want to make a call to the bullpen. Pete has got a fast pitch on one name he thinks is going to break out. Head on over to the plasma. All right. your best shot. All right, here I go. I got no. a great name for you guys, and I, I know I already got Guy Adami sucked into this one because he's going to love it. Lockheed Martin. Yep. You love that name. I already knew that, so I locked you up already. Here's what I love about it. They've got an unbelievable CEO who took over five years ago, and since she took over, this stock has tripled underneath what she's been able to accomplish. One of them was a great acquisition of Sequoia which for $9 billion has really paid dividends for these guys. It's unbelievable. Speaking of dividends, the fundamental story remains unbelievably intact. It trades at a 15 PE. If you go forward, it trades at a 12 PE. So it's very inexpensive. It's, tra- it's given you a 3% dividend yield, and they've shrunk their share count, in other words, buybacks, 12% over the last five years since you took over as well. The strong earnings growth, the revenue growth, the revenue growth is not unbelievable. But it's the middle single digits, that's fine. It's get about 6 or 7%. But the earnings growth, that continues, and obviously some of that is engineered by the fact that they're shrinking their share count. But I love what they're doing. I love the fact that they are so dependent on the U.S. government, and we know who's sitting in the Oval Office right now. He is not about to start cutting back on what's going on with defense. So because of all those reasons, I think this is a stock that can actually go to the upside significantly from where it is right now. I'm not going to give away my answer, Pedro, yeah. but I'll play devil's advocate yeah. because that's what we need to do here. Sure. Does it concern you that the stock has had a pretty significant bounce from about 245 or so to current levels, 310 into earnings, I believe, on or about April 24th? Yeah. Um, I, I love what I love the fact that it's reacted. Guy, basically, it's reacted like the rest of the market. I still think because of the valuation, again, it goes to the very top of the show. What you're looking for in this market right now is a great valuation that has a, a dividend yield north of wherever the 10-year is right now. That combination and the fact that there's not slowing, they're growing, I like this stock to go to the upside. All right, no more questions. Time to vote. Are you buying Pete's pitch on Lockheed Martin? What does that say, Mel? Read the thing. I didn't even recognize it. It says... They just said they just said we're starting with they're starting with you. Houston 2020. What does that mean? She should run for president. It's not Maryland Lockheed, by the way. It's Maryland Houston. People know what I'm talking about. I'm sure Dan knows. But I'm with Pete on that one. Your buyer. Yes. There you go. What does Dan say? What does that say? It doesn't say anything. My thing doesn't work here. Um, I'm a seller of this. (laughs) Of course Listen, this thing trades in a market multiple. It's got mid-singles, earnings, and sales growth, 3% dividend yield. It all makes sense. Everything you said makes sense. This stock is in a massive, massive downtrend from those 2018 highs above 350. I think it kind of topped out here. Relative performance to the S&P, I think, is really bad right now. So I think this thing sees lower. You've got to get the opportunities when they're there, Dan. On the sector, Phil, Maybe. what do you say? Buy or sell? Well, first of all, all rise, Yanks 1-0. Right I like on. it. Aaron Judge for an MVP. I like that. But I also like the sector. So buy defense here. This is a great portfolio diversifier for you. And the comment that, that Pete made around kind of the government contract and things like that, that is certainly something that we would incorporate into the portfolio. I feel like this is unprecedented, Pete. 
for hmm. everybody is buying. No, I saw. No, Dan's oh, not. No. Of course Dan's oh, not. I Don't you, did you listen not to Not of course, them? Pete. Not yeah. of course. Uh, we want to know if you at home are buying Pete's picture, Lockheed Martin, vote in our Twitter poll. You can see Fastlane will reveal the results later on in the show. Plus, chip stocks on fire this year. But are these high-flying stocks getting too hot to touch? The traders will weigh in when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Micron getting a boost today after RBC initiated uh, the stock with an outperform rating. The stock uh, uh, had a $50 price target. Shares of Micron have been under some pressure in the past month. The slowing memory chip demand and global growth fears have weighed on this stock. But RBC says expectations are bottoming. There's a ramp up in non-Apple smartphones later this year, and that's expected to help the company. Shares of Micron up double digits this year, but still trailing behind names like Xilinx, AMD, NVIDIA. They've all surged more than 30%. So should investors play Micron? for a chance for a catch-up, or do you just stick with the leaders? I feel like uh, this is a Regis question. I feel like I'm channeling. Remember Regis? I love Regis. Regis. He's watching right now. Oh, he's he probably is. in his pajamas. He's already eaten dinner. Oh, really? I mean, he <laughs> ate dinner like three hours ago. I re- he's watching. So you know long. he's watching. No yeah. kidding. Really? See? He's, he, he called in. I don't think you chase it here. And you said the stock was up. Market was up today. Yeah. Micron was up a quarter of a percent. That's not all gangbusters, quite frankly. The quarter to me was lousy. Steve Grasso mentions this. DRAM pricing has been lousy. I don't know what people looking at when they bought it after the earnings report, but I think the stock set it back to 35. At 35, we're going to have a conversation. At 39 and a half, I say no. Given your views on cyclicals, you probably love semis. Yeah, the bigger picture on tech is are we going to get a trade deal? Because CapEx just went silent in the summer and early fall of last year. So are we going to get a trade deal? And the other thing that, that's important for tech is, is, again, back to the Fed. the Fed. Tech has had a field day over the past decade. I mean, up over 600% because of easy policy. And that's basically what the Fed has endorsed for the next couple yeah, of years. You know, Micron, I think, is one of the most difficult of all the stocks in the SME space because it just seems like by far the most volatile. Because you look at Intel, you look at AMD, you look at Marvell, all these various names, and they perform at their own sp- pace. But Micron either is flying to the upside or it's dropping like a rock, and we all know that. We've seen these ranges. It's unbelievable, right? I mean, this was a $55 stock not that long ago, and here we are at 40, and we're talking about it's already made a move to the upside to 40. So I think there are opportunities, and maybe at this level, maybe because it's so beaten and so unloved that it might be the right time to be in Micron. Well, I think that's why the stock did rally after that earnings report, because it wasn't particularly good, except that sentiment was so bad and the expectations were really low, so you had a little bit of a short squeeze. I just mentioned this. You know, last year we talked about how the semis really topped out in Q1 of 2018 and made a series of lower highs uh, and lower lows for most of the year. The outperformance off the bottom is fantastic, but there was a lot of double ordering in the first half of the year. They had major inventory issues. I don't think that turns on a dime, even if we get a trade deal anytime soon. So ahead, telecom stocks disconnecting today amid doubts over the Sprint and T-Mobile merger. One of the traders says, don't get hung up on this sell-off. There could be gains ahead. We've got the details and Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Doubts over the Sprint T-Mobile merger sending telecom stocks sinking today. Despite the move, one trader's betting that one of those stocks uh, could be about to bounce back. Dan, why don't you break it down? Yeah, it was in Verizon. Here's a company that actually the stock has massively outperformed the whole sector. Uh, total options volume was two times average daily volume today. And there was a trade that caught my eye shortly after the open when the stock um, was trading um, at about 
60 bucks. There was a buyer of 3,000 of these September 62 and a half calls paying about a dollar and a half for those. Those break even at $64 on September expiration. That's up about six and a half percent from the trading level. What's really interesting here, look at this one year chart. Like I said, Verizon has massively outperformed its peers. It got um, a little bit of resistance here at that prior high from uh, last year here, and it kind of fell back pretty hard today. Not on new news. If the reason it was down because some doubts about T-Mobile Sprint, I'm not sure that should have been a reason why Verizon should have been down. But when you think out to September, if you're buying out-of-the-money calls above the all-time high, look at this 25-year chart. This stock's all-time high came on December 31st, 1999. It was about 62.30. So if you are buying calls out above those all-time highs, you're playing for an epic, epic breakout. That's obviously with defined risk here. So to me, I just don't know what the catalyst for it to break out, but it's one way to do it. Hey, what do you think of this action? I think they are playing just the breakout. And we see that happen all the time where people are reaching and they're saying, you know what, they're up against resistance. We think it's going to bust through. They start buying these calls. I think it's a very, very nice piece of work you have. Giddy up. Yeah. All right. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. The Twitter universe has spoken on Pete's pitch on Lockheed Martin, and he lost. Oh. But we're still going to play the winning song. No. Make me feel better. <laughs> it's all good. So there you go. It's all good. We, we lost the rights. To, we lost the right to the other song. Throw it out. It's all crumbling down around us. Time for the final trade, Pete. I'm going to give you a night swift. We talked about transportations. I think this trucker's going higher. Giddy up. Bill. S&P 500. The earnings forecast for this year at 4%. Very easy hurdle to jump over. Go for U.S. large cap. All right, Dan. I'm going to stretch it out. I don't want to give guys so much time right what? here. Because I just think that could get... out. Oh, Micron. Stretch. You were talking about semis. I think yeah, you we sell the Micron. I just think it's such a like commodity. It. Yeah, I don't like it. Sell it. Okay. Did you know today was opening day, Mel? You know, the Yankees no. play in the Bronx. It's like, <laughs> if you look... Really? You didn't know? I knew because I read about it. I'm pointing where the stadium is. I've North. been to Yankee Stadium many times, Guy. Dollar General. Bad news, good price action. I'm just saying. All right. That does it for us. Feel great to have you here on the desk. Thank you. Be back here tomorrow at 5 for more fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money starts right now.